0: This morning we began a series of lessons going through the book of Romans and this morning was kind of an introductory lesson to uh, what what Romans is all about and the journey that we'll be taking over the next couple of months. Now Uh, the the plan right now is for this series to go to until about Easter, which is the last week of March. So we have about three months to be in Romans. Romans is 16 chapters, and it's 16 deep chapters. There is a lot in Romans that you could spend an awful lot of time on that I'm simply not going to be able to cover on Sunday morning sermons. And so I've already kind of mapped out what I'm going to be doing on Sunday mornings. And so Sunday nights— are where we will be looking at some of the things that we weren't able to cover on Sunday morning. And so Sunday nights will complement the Sunday morning lessons. Uh, They'll usually, they're going to stick with Romans. Um, And so we'll be looking at maybe some of the passages that don't get as much attention, or perhaps some questions that pop up. uh, you know, for example, there are passages in Romans that are highly contested, uh, and, and different interpreters take them different directions. You have Calvinist interpretations and and uh, Wesleyan interpretations, or whatever. And uh, and so sometimes on Sunday nights, you know, we we might not spend a ton of time digging into the controversies on Sunday morning, but we might get into how uh, how we can interpret a difficult passage or something on Sunday nights. Uh, and so that's that's mostly what we'll be doing on Sunday nights for the next couple of months: is is sticking with Romans. Um, looking at some texts that we won't cover on Sunday morning and possibly trying to get an understanding of some of the more complex or uh, controversial texts that appear throughout Romans. Um, But that's what we're going to be doing tonight also. So, this morning we talked about what Romans is all about. And uh, we looked at some of the, you know, discussed briefly some of the major themes that Paul raises. But we also looked at the first and the last paragraph of Romans. And they really complement each other quite well. Uh, they both uh, directly talk about the gospel, they directly talk about the Gentiles coming to a, the obedience of faith as that is, is the outcome of the gospel. The gospel will call Gentiles to be obedient to the faith along with Jews so that they are united together in this obedient faith to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is also mentioned in the first and the last. And the idea is how is it that you take people of different nations and different backgrounds and different histories and you unite them as one people? Well, you make them one people with one true king. And that's what Jesus becomes for Jew and Gentile alike. And so the story of Romans and the story of the gospel is how Jesus became king and in so doing unites all mankind together into one family under God. And part of that gospel is uh, that there is salvation and eternal life and, uh, and, and hope forevermore and peace that comes with that. Like those are all ramifications of the story of Jesus becoming king. And the story of Jesus becoming king has that fantastically ironic twist that he didn't become king by conquering his enemies, as so many others have. He became king through the death, the burial, and the resurrection. That's where he had his crown, but it was a crown of thorns. That's where he had the plaque above his head that said, the king of the Jews. And he was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, is how Romans 1 begins. And so Jesus, there's this story of his enthronement, this story of his kingship, and how that unites all people together into one family. And that's the gospel that Paul preaches. It's a gospel that was spoken of in the the prophets of the scriptures. For long ages past, you can see it all the way back in the book of Genesis, where Abraham is first promised that through him, all the families and all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Well, in Jesus, that time has come. And I think that's that's the, the thought process and the motivation behind Paul's missionary efforts, is that time has come to bring the blessing of God to all of the nations, and that is found in Jesus himself. And so we talked about Romans uh, getting us to that story, Romans bringing about those ideas uh, throughout. Now, one of the things historically that is uh, difficult is that Paul is writing to the church at Rome, and we talked about some of the, the... Circumstances taking place there. I think there is a, a rift between Jews and Gentiles. Uh, you, you see that on quite a few pages as you read through Romans. And as you get towards the end, I think you start seeing some of the specific problems that he's trying to solve problems regarding food and uh, in certain days that are honored. And, and I think these are Jewish Gentile arguments. And when you get to Romans 14 and 15, after spending all of those chapters building up to this point, he now tells them how to accept one another and to live even with these differences uh, among them. So so Romans is getting us to that point, but Paul has never actually been there when he writes this book. Paul doesn't, he hasn't been with this church face to face and he's wanted to, he's tried to time and time again, but it seems like every time he wants to do it, another opportunity uh, arises. And Paul, one of his strategies, and you'll see this in in the book of Romans, he will go first and foremost to places that have not been evangelized yet, where there is no church. That's where he wants to go uh, primarily as a missionary. In Rome is already a church there. You know, there someone has already planted there. And he doesn't want to plant in another man's field. And so he keeps he says he's been prevented from going there. And I think I think being prevented is the Lord keeps opening up doors to him to these areas where no one has heard the gospel yet. And that's where he goes first. But he really wants to go to Rome, but it's 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 second priority behind uh, unchurched places and unevangelized lands. And so Paul really wants to go there. And so he writes this letter not actually knowing the people there. Uh, at least, uh, I mean, he knows of them, and, and we'll, we'll see that in a second. He, he's able to greet a long list of them, but he hasn't been there yet. He knows Priscilla and Aquila. He knows about the good work that they're doing. He'll mention in chapter one how the work that they do is known throughout the world. Like, like the church of Rome is a well-known place, and he has partners in ministry there, but he hasn't been there yet. And so because of that, he's writing this letter And I think it serves two purposes. One, I think it serves the purpose of actually trying to help them understand the gospel so as to overcome the problems that they're dealing with. But secondly, I think it serves as a good introduction to Paul for these people who might not know him very well yet. Paul's plan is to go to Rome and his plan is not only to go there, but to spend some time there, to get to know them even better, and then to be supported by them as he makes an even further missionary effort into Spain. So if you ever talk to someone who is uh, like heavily involved in travel and missionary efforts for the kingdom. Talk to Tom Langley. Uh, you know, you'll, you'll see something if you do that. Uh, they always have something going on right now, and they always have something planned uh, that, that they're going to do next. And, and a lot of times those are big plans, you know, something that they have uh, in store that they're going to be working on and they're excited about. Paul, I think right now, he's working on this contribution that he's going to bring to Jerusalem from the Gentiles to help the church there in Jerusalem. There's going to be a famine there, or there is a famine there. And he thinks one of the greatest ways to unite Jew and Gentile together would be for the Gentiles to help the Jews through this famine. And he says it's actually that works out well because the Gentiles— are obedient to the faith that they learned from the Jews. So the Gentiles have a spiritual debt to the Jews, and they can help them by uh, physically or monetarily supporting them through their hardship. So like the Jews have aided the Gentiles in spiritual things, so the Gentiles are going to help the Jews in physical things. That's part of his logic, and that's how we all help each other, and we're all in this thing together. And so that's what he's working on right now. But after accomplishing that. He says his goal is to take the gospel all the way to Spain, which we don't have in the New Testament. Uh, We don't have him getting to Spain. Uh, But he wants to go from Jerusalem to Rome, spend some time there, get support from them there, and then launch off into Spain. Now, if you read the book of Acts, what ends up happening is he goes to Jerusalem and he's arrested there and so his plans uh, don't turn out exactly like he, he has uh, envisioned and has he hopes. Um, if you talk to a lot of, you know, missionaries who are heavily involved in, in travel, you'll find out that happens too. Uh, sometimes you have this plan for what you want to have happen, and other doors are opened, or some doors are closed, and things change, and you have to, you have to learn how to, how to navigate from there. But so, so the book of Romans— finds itself in the middle of all of that. I think Paul is introducing the gospel that he's going to be teaching when he gets there, introducing the gospel that he's going to be bringing to Spain, and he's trying to introduce himself, trying to build some relationships, trying to lay the groundwork for when he does get there and gets to meet the church in Rome. Now the book of Acts does end with him in Rome. It's just not—it's uh, not—he's not free as he's there. He's a prisoner in Rome, uh, so he does get there, but uh, but it's not quite the way that he had planned. So with all of that said, I want to read. Uh, some of Paul's introductory marks about uh, his thoughts and his plans with the church in Rome, and then some of the things he says in chapter 15 as he's drawing his letter to a close, and we'll see some of the ways that they help us understand a little bit more about what's going on uh, with the book of Romans as we introduce it. So, uh, Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 15, they are in Paul's absence— from the church in Rome, I think he's going to be trying to um, let them know that even though he's not physically there with them, he loves them and he cares for them and he is one with them. And some of the ways that he's going to do that, I think there's three things you see here. The first is he's going to let them know that he's very thankful for them. Uh, If you want to build relationships with people, let them know the things that you're thankful for that they do. And Paul does that. He tells them he's thankful for them. Secondly, he prays for them, and he tells them. He prays for them all the time. He spends time in prayer with them. And if you, are, you, know, if you can't be present with someone in body, be present with them in prayer. And Paul uses prayer as, uh, as what he can do to connect with them when he can't be with them personally. But then third, he lets them know, I really do want to come and see you. Uh, he he's talks about how uh, his desire is to go and spend time with them and to see them. And he has been prevented now, but he wants to. So in these three ways, he's thankful for them. He prays for them and he wants to go see them. He's showing that he genuinely cares about these churches that are there in the city of Rome. So let's look at verse eight and see kind of the way that Paul uh, makes these points. He says in verse 8, first I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. And so remember, we've talked about he hasn't been there, but he knows that a lot of the people there, at least uh, knows them uh, indirectly, and and some of them certainly directly, Um, but he talks about the fact that he's thankful for them, but he also gives the reason why, and it's because their faith is proclaimed throughout the whole world. There are some churches uh, that have developed a reputation uh, as being faithful places that are accomplishing good for the kingdom in some uh, really impressive ways. And that's that's true today, and that's true 2,000 years ago. In Rome, uh, I think you see a very similar word to the church at Thessalonica, where he says something similar about when he goes to a place they're able to tell him about the work that's going on in Thessalonica uh, because the word there has, has, you know, sounded forth and uh, people have heard about the good things taking place. Well, the church in Rome, even with the conflicts that they've had, are still known for their faithfulness uh, throughout the whole world. Now, one of the things that is, again, helpful about that is when he uses language about, like, the whole world, That is unifying language. That is language that it's not, and the Jews really like the work you're doing, or the Gentiles really like the work you're doing. This is something where the the whole world, whether you're Jew or Gentile, is able to hear about and talk about and be thankful for the work and the the faith taking place at Rome. And so he thanks them for that, and he compliments them for the type of church that they are. And so right off the bat, you see Paul— strengthening his relationship with them and uh, setting, laying the groundwork for growing in that relationship. Secondly, in verse 9, is where he starts talking about uh, how God is his witness as to how often he prays for them. He says in verse 9, "'For God, whom I serve with my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son,' He is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you always in my prayers, making requests, if perhaps now at last by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. And so secondly, he talks about how God is his witness. You know, they, they might not be able to hear all of his prayers, but God does. And God can be his witness as to how unceasingly he mentions them in his prayers. And so not only is he thankful for them, he is prayerful about them, and he wants them to know that. Uh, again, if you, are, if you are distant from someone, spending time in prayer for that person is a good way to, to uh, close that gap. It's a good way to connect you to that person, even when you can't be there uh, physically present with them, and Paul does that for the church in Rome, but he also lets them know about it, and I think sometimes that's helpful too. Uh, it, it's one thing to pray for someone, and that's great. But there is something encouraging about knowing that someone is praying for you as well. And so Paul, he does this in in his letters often. He will tell them that he's praying for them, and then he'll also tell them what he's praying for. Uh, look at the beginning of many of his letters. And he just lays out what his prayers are for these people. And I think that's a helpful thing to do. I think that's a good, uh, a good uh, practice to, to imitate uh, that Paul is engaged in. But here he mentions that he is praying for them. And the thing that he mentions he is uh, praying unceasingly to be able to do right there at the end of verse 10 is that he may, be, uh, may succeed in coming to them. He wants to be with them. Uh, It's one thing to hear about their faith. That's wonderful. It's another thing to pray for them from a distance. And that's good and, and necessary too. But he would love to actually be able to be with them, one with another and spend time with each other. And so he says in verse 11, for I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you. That you may be established. So he wants to go and give them a spiritual gift. And he doesn't, he's not specific as to what exactly that spiritual gift is. We know that there are um, spiritual gifts of the church in, in Rome already. Uh, when you get to chapter 12, he talks about prophecy and he talks about uh, people who are uh, engaged in different types of spiritual gifts, administrations and generosity and, and, and things like that. Um, so exactly the spiritual gift he's talking about here, it is something that will establish them. Um, it is something that would come from him specifically specifically, uh, you know, it may be a, a, a non-miraculous thing, just the very presence of being with them and encouraging them and strengthening them and, and, and teaching the Word of God to them. Uh, you know, it may, it may be as an apostle some, some additional gift that he wants to give to them, uh, but I think what you have there is he wants to be with them so that he can be a benefit to them so that his ministry, his teaching, can give something to them that would help establish them, that would help uh, solidify uh, the work in the ministry that they're doing. And then verse 12, he gets a little bit more detail. He says, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. And so he wants to give them a spiritual gift that they may be established. And he wants to receive the encouragement that comes from them as well, because he knows that being around them will be an encouragement. And so he will offer encouragement to them. They will offer encouragement to him. And in that, each other's faith will be a benefit to to each other. And so, again, it's wonderful to be thankful, and it's wonderful to pray. But there's also something about being actually with each other. Spending time physically with one another that uh, is encouraging to one another, and that's you know as as we think about uh, as we think about our worship, as we think about uh, you know gathering together on the first day of the week and prioritizing that time together where we're physically in the presence of one another, where we can see and touch and hug and smile and and like all of those things that we share with one another, Paul wants to have that with the church in Rome, and. You know, in his, in his context, it's lacking because he's in a different place. You know, he, he's probably writing this from like Sincrea or, or the Corinth area um, in, in Achaia. And so he is, you know, separated from them because he's in a different city. But how tragic would it be to be in the same city? and to still keep that physical distance uh, between you and your brethren, to put other things in front of going and gathering together with the church. Uh, Some of the quotes we talked about last week from Bonhoeffer talk about how beneficial it is. It actually is a gift to be present with one another, and it's a gift that if you have it, you can sometimes forget how valuable it is. You can sometimes take it for granted. Paul is in a situation where he's not taking it for granted. He is praying unceasingly that he can go and be with them. Um, People who are shut-ins or people who are in a foreign land or people who are in prison or people who are exiled or people who are persecuted and and all of these other things that can come up, people with sickness that keeps them away, they will understand the struggle of of not being able to be present with others. Paul is writing this, and he spends quite a bit of time here in this opening paragraph and then also in chapter 15 talking about this idea of how much he wants to physically go be with those brethren. And so he says that when they do this, they will be, each be an encouragement to one another, uh, each of us, verse 12, by the other's faith, both yours and mine. Verse 13, he says, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as the rest of the Gentiles. For I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, to the wise and the foolish. And so in here he is uh describing them as a church of the Gentiles uh, because he he mentions even as the rest of the, the Gentiles. But he wants to go there and receive some of the the harvest, receive some of the fruit uh, of the gospel that that it produces. And he wants to go there, and he's had that in other places, these other churches where he works among the Gentiles, but he wants it with the church in Rome also. And so he, a Jew, wanting to work with the church of the Gentiles and receive some of the fruit that is produced there, is again showing how he's trying to build uh, bridges uh, that could unify Jew and Gentile together. He says in verse 14 that he's in debt or he's under obligation to Greeks and barbarians, to the wise and to foolish, meaning whether you are looking at the educated and the high-class Gentiles or the uneducated, the, the foolish Gentiles, whether you're looking at uh, ones that are respected or the ones who are not respected, he sees that his service to the gospel is to each and every one of them among that spectrum. And so no matter where you are, he wants to be of service to you. And the gospel that he presents is, it really is interesting, you know, when he's in Athens, you get the impression that he uh, he he can stand toe-to-toe with some of the philosophers of the day, and he can he can stand toe-to-toe with the Stoics and the Epicureans, and he can present a, a convincing defense of the gospel. But in his letter to the church at Corinth, which Corinth is actually pretty close to, to Athens, uh, he talks about how he didn't come to them with much wisdom or an eloquence of speech. He determined to know nothing among them save Christ and him crucified. Because he'll rely on the on the foolishness of God is, is the language that he uses to teach the gospel of them. Because even the foolishness of God is wiser than men. Uh, but as, as he presents the ideas to them, he talks about the fact— uh, I mean, I feel like he's being overly humble because he actually is pretty impressive in his, uh, in his writing and in his, uh, and it seems to be in some of his speech, but he talks about the ways that he has reached people who are, uh, you know, different stratas of society, and uh, he mentions being under obligation to them right there. Verse 15, he says, "'So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also.'" Who are in Rome. And then from there, and we're not gonna get into it tonight, he launches off into what that gospel is that gospel being the power of God, uh, of, of salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew and to the Greek. Together because the righteousness and the justice of God is revealed in the gospel, and that is what will bring uh, and unify people together into one. And so he wants to go there and present the gospel because that's where the power of God's justice and salvation is found. And so that is how he introduces us to verse 16, which is the really famous verse in Romans that kind of is the launching point for this theological discussion about the gospel that he's going to have. But notice how in that he talks about being thankful for them. He talks about praying for them. He talks about longing to see them. I want us to remember that as we go to Romans 15 now, Romans chapter 15, and we'll see some of these ideas emerge a little bit more. Um, as, we, uh, as we see Paul getting more descriptive and specific about what some of his plans and goals are. But if you look at uh, verse 17, actually, we, we'll, we'll skip down to verse 20. He says, And thus I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named so that I would not build on another man's foundation, uh, but as it is written, they who had no news of him shall see, and those who have not heard shall understand. So remember what I said earlier about Paul prioritizes going to places where no one has preached the gospel yet? Well, that's what he's saying right here. And he's actually using Isaiah 52, that passage that he quotes, where, where they had no news will see, and they who had not heard shall understand. He's, he, he is using that as his missionary guide. The places that don't have news of Christ, that's where he wants to go first. The places that haven't heard of Christ, that's where he wants to go and make sure they understand. Uh, Rome there is already a church there. So people have news of Christ and they have heard there. And so he wants to go there, but that's not the priority. The priority is to go to the places that haven't heard yet and don't have news yet. yet. In verse 22, he says, for this reason, I have been prevented from coming to you. So that's why he, he's, he hasn't been able to make it. So back in chapter one, I'll just mention it quickly. He says, he wants them to know how often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far well, how has he been prevented? Well, this is because you have these other places where they haven't heard and they don't understand, so he's going to go there first. But he really wants to go to Rome, but he has, the, he has work to be done first. Uh, and so he mentions in verse 22, back in 15, uh, chapter 15 of verse 22, that uh, that's why he's been prevented. But then verse 23, he says, but now— with no further place for me in these regions. And since I have for many years had a longing to come to you whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped by you on my way there when I have first enjoyed your company for a while. But now I am going to Jerusalem serving the saints. All right, so in that he's saying, all right, I have wanted to see you, but I keep going to all the places where they haven't heard the gospel, but I've done that everywhere in this region now. So now I'm looking for a new region. And I tell you, the region I want to go to next is Spain. And so if I'm going to go to Spain where they haven't heard the gospel, you're on the way. And this is how I can make it all work. I can go and spend some time with you and I can, uh, I can uh, you know, get to know you better. I can preach my gospel there. But he also, in verse 24, he says, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you when I have first enjoyed your company for a while. He wants to be helped by the church there on his way to Spain. And I think he's talking about uh, support for the work that he's going to do there. So he's looking for a place that he can preach where no one has preached yet. He's just finished all of the areas he can find in his region. So now he's thinking Spain is the next place. And that's perfect because the church in Rome that I really wanna see is on the way there. And so I'm going to stop to the, at the church in Rome, and I'm going to spend some time with them before I go to Spain and, uh, and spend some time evangelizing there. But I, I wonder if, uh, kind of like when you look at his missionary journeys in Acts, he always goes back to Antioch. That's his, that's his base congregation for the work that he does, then he goes back there I wonder if part of the book of Romans is trying to build a relationship with the church in Rome so that as he continues to travel westward, he can use the church at Rome as a base congregation. Uh, And so he wants to make sure that they are good and healthy. He wants to make sure they understand the gospel that he's preaching. He wants to spend time with them, and he wants to get support from them as he then goes and presents the gospel uh, further westward and uh, and continues his work into Spain. So that's his goal. First, like I said, he's probably writing this from like the Corinth or Sincrea area there in Achaia, which is Greece area. He needs to make a trip to Jerusalem because he, verse 25, but now I am going to Jerusalem serving the saints. So he needs to go back to Jerusalem and then from Jerusalem go to Rome and then from Rome go to Spain. So we're getting all of these travel plans from Paul. And I, that, that stuff might be boring to some people. I think it's interesting to see that Paul, like, I, I don't know, I think it's fascinating to look at what Paul's goals are as he thinks about where he's going next and, uh, and, you know, the different cities that he wants to hit along the way and how strategic he is with planning everywhere he wants to go so that he can establish new churches, strengthen churches, build relationships, go to, to help the Jews, evangelize to the Gentiles. Like, you see all of these things in his plans, his entire life. Is motivated, is scheduled, and is, is, uh, is the, it's scheduled around what is best for bringing the gospel to the greatest number of people and using the gospel to strengthen those people. And, and you, I think that just pours through the pages when you read some of his travel plans. But then verse 26, he mentioned that he's going to help the church in, in uh, Jerusalem. In verse 26, he says, for Macedonia— so that's going to be the area north of Greece. That's where like Thessalonica and Philippi and Berea, those cities are in, are in Macedonia. And Achaia. Achaia is, uh, is Greece. It's, it's going to be where uh, you have uh, Athens and Syncria and, and some of those cities where he is now. And he says, both of them, and those are Gentile places, have been pleased to make contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. So they have collected money to go help the saints in Jerusalem. Those are going to be your Jewish Christians. So like the church in Greece and the church in Macedonia, they are helping the church in Jerusalem and the poor Christians who were there. Uh, He he loves this idea because in verse 27, he he gets to explain how this is all part of what the gospel calls us to do. Yes, they were pleased to do so and uh, and they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, so if Gentiles have benefited from like the Jewish Messiah and the Jewish scriptures and the Jewish the gospel that came uh, from Israel, if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, then they are indebted to minister to them in material things. So that's the money that they're raising for them. And so he shows how it all works together. The Jews have helped the Gentiles, and now the Gentiles are helping the Jews. In verse 28, Therefore, when I have finished this, when I've collected from the Gentiles and I've brought the money to the, the, the Jews who were there in Israel and in Jerusalem, when I have finished this and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs. And I've said, you know, I've, I've explained and said, this is what this is all about. And I approve of this and this is great. And this is, this is from the work that I've done to you. If you remember, Paul and the church at, at Jerusalem have had some conflicts. Uh, and so Paul, I think, is if he's able to go there and, and show real productivity and fruitfulness and generosity and help from the work that he's doing among Gentiles, then that helps his relationship with the church in Jerusalem too. It helps their attitudes towards Gentiles. It helps everything. So when he says, when I go and I do this, then, verse 28, I will go on, uh, on, I will go on by way of you, the church in Rome, to Spain. And I know that when I have come to you, I, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. And then uh, we will just kind of close this lesson by reading the last few verses, verses 30 through 33, where Paul says, Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints. So he says, now, guys, I want... I want you to pray for me very fervently, because the reality is I am going to bring this gift to Jerusalem, and there's n- not everyone there agrees with the work that I'm doing. Uh, I pray for soft hearts. I pray that it works well. I pray that uh, I won't be uh, you know, arrested or beaten or killed by those who are disobedient in Jerusalem. By the way, he will be arrested, uh, so that, that, is, that is what happens. Uh, you know, sometimes you have prayers like in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus is fervently praying, and yet he still goes to the cross. Uh, Paul is warned by prophets not to go to Jerusalem, but he knows that's the thing that he needs to do. Paul is asking for prayers that he will be safe when he's there, and yet when he gets there, he is still arrested. One of the things that's fascinating about that, though, and it's, it just shows how unpredictable uh, God is, is it's through Paul's imprisonment that he ends up getting to Rome. It's through Paul's imprisonment that he ends up getting the opportunity to speak to Felix and Festus and Agrippa and these kings and rulers, and, and he gets to travel. Like, his imprisonment opened up the door to get there in an unpredictable way. It's not how he wanted to get to Rome, but he is able to get there, but he's asking before all of that happens for their praise, prayers for safety, and verse 31 that my service for, the, uh, for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints, that the church will be glad, that they'll receive the gift, that they'll be thankful to the Gentile churches, that they'll begin to see some of the benefit of Paul's missionary work that he's doing among the Gentiles. And then verse 32, So that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. It's like, And I'm hoping that after all of this hard and troublesome and difficult and frightening work is done, I can go and spend some time with you and have some rest with Christians who love me and who I love. And that's what I'm wanting to have there in Rome. So part of this letter, I think, is trying to, to set up that type of relationship so that he can go there and find peace and rest with those Christians in Rome after he finishes some of the hard work that he's doing and some of the dangerous work that he's doing among the Gentiles now and bringing that to the church in Jerusalem. So part of the, the purpose of this lesson is, yes, historically, to see kind of what Paul's plans are as this book is being written, but also to show if the book of Romans is meant to unify Jews and Gentiles together, can you see how accomplishing that through this book Serves his overall missionary strategy and efforts at like everything that he's doing. So like the Book of Romans is this powerful description of Paul's mindset as he lives and teaches among Gentiles. Uh, and he tries to strengthen the church and unite Jew and Gentile together. Like, he's doing so much to bring that about. And this letter is his description as to how it all works and why it works and how the gospel is central to accomplishing that goal and that mission. And so uh, I'm looking forward to getting more into Romans uh, as we go through it. But, uh, but that's kind of what's going on as Paul is writing it and some of his thought processes behind everything. Um, but as we close, the gospel is powerful. It's the power of God unto salvation, and it was the motivating force behind everything Paul did in his life, and it's the main thrust of why we should be united together as one people, and it is offered to you here tonight. Jesus is king, and he is Lord. And I, I, I've heard it said before, and, I, and I, I think it's true. The gospel is good news. It's not a good suggestion. It's not a good, uh, it's not a good uh, question. It's good news. And what that means is whether you're on board with it or not, Jesus is king. Like, that's a fact. That's the news. That is what happened. Jesus became king. And the question is, what are you going to do with that fact now? Uh, And so through the gospel, you are called to live with Jesus as Lord and King of your life and you will be forgiven of your sins in baptism. You will uh, be able to name him as Lord of your life, and you will be able to live under his reign now and for eternity. Um, But the choice is yours as to what you're going to do with that news as it's presented. And so if you have a need, please let it be known. Come sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.